Hello world, welcome to the Political Worldview podcast, April 24th, 2018, the Who's Bombing Syria Today edition. I'm Adam Quinn, Senior Lecturer in International Politics at the Political Science and International Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. I'm joined as usual by my co-host, Scott Lucas, who is a Professor of International Politics and Editor of News and Commentary site EA Worldview. How are you doing, Scott? I'm doing swimmingly now that we're back on air and broadcasting. Indeed, the Easter term break is over. We're tanned, rested, ready, and we're going to be talking, as we have before, uh, about the Syrian civil war. On Friday, April 13th, the United States, with some assistance from frequent allies, Britain and France, launched bombing raids against three government-controlled sites in Syria. The strikes were, they said, a response to the Assad regime's use of chemical weapons near Damascus a week earlier, killing more than 40 people. Their professed aim was to draw a line in the sand against the use of such weapons. Uh, The limited scale of the strikes when they came was a relief to some. Uh, In the week after chemical weapons were used, President Trump had talked big about the possible scale of U.S. military response. Uh, This included publicly trading threats with Russia, which supports Assad sad and has significant military assets on the ground, vulnerable to being hit, whether deliberately or accidentally, in any major U.S. strike, which, as you can imagine, is worrisome to some. A reminder for those who have not been following closely, the Syrian conflict started in 2011, when clashes between President Assad's security forces and protesters turned violent. It rapidly spiraled into a full-scale civil war that to date has killed approaching half a million people on some estimates and displaced millions. It has in the meantime grown to include not just the original sides, but also, and here I draw a deep breath, ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Kurdish separatists, Russia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Israel, Turkey, Lebanese, Hezbollah, the United States, and its allies, which is where we came in. So to help us get our heads around this, we have a guest, Uma Karim, who is a doctoral researcher here at the Pulses Department and an expert, I am happy to say, given our needs in this moment, in the international relations of the Middle East. Welcome, Uma. Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. No problem. Uh, Thank you very much for being here with us today. So a lot to get through. I doubt we're going to crack it, but we're going to begin before we get on to the wider issue of the conflict as a whole by talking about what it is that happened most recently. Okay, Scott, so in my summary, the simple relief version of this is that the Syrian regime used chemical weapons and the United States bombed them for it. Uh, Let's get on the table exactly what, what happened here first before we go any broader. What happened on April the 7th, to the best of our knowledge? I mean, that's a really important question because partly because of just confusion over an event like this, and then in large part because of a fervent Russian and Assad regime propaganda campaign, disinformation campaign to muddy the waters, a lot of people have their hands up about whether there was even a chemical weapons attack. Let me preface this also by saying you will never get a formal finding of whether there was an attack because the body that was authorized to do this, the Organization for Prohibition of Chemical Weapons, has been blocked by the Russians Uh, In a U.N. vote last November, the U.N. said the OPCW can no longer attribute responsibility for an attack. So what I'm going to give you is why what we believe happened, in fact, almost certainly no happened, based on firsthand sources. And we have quite a few, both at EA Worldview and also working with other media outlets, from doctors, first responders, local journalists, uh, residents, and activists who were in Duma, this town outside Damascus on April the 7th. Almost all the witnesses agree that there were two attacks. There was one at 4 p.m. and one at about 7 p.m. And that the first attack was with chlorine, which doesn't cause that many fatalities. It's, it's quite nasty stuff, causes breathing problems, but it tends to cause more injuries. There was a second more serious attack, which was not only chlorine, but what appears to be an organophosphate. Now, uh, sarin which has been used by the Assad regime before, is an organophosphate, but we don't know it was sarin in this case. But it appears that this mix of organophosphate and chlorine was responsible for about 85 deaths, as well as hundreds of people wounded. Now, not only do we have that account from people who said this within the first 24 hours, 
But those people who have left Duma and who are in the north of the country because the town surrendered soon after the attack have continued to say that there were two attacks and they continue to say that they were with helicopters. Mm-hmm. Now, particularly what's known as a HIP, an MI-8 helicopter, Soviet-made or Russian-made. And, of course, that's important because only one side in the conflict has helicopters. The rebels don't. The White Helmets rescuers don't. So what we have is, is that the most likely scenario is that the Assad regime did carry out this attack. It, it did occur. It was not as the initial Russia line was that there was no attack at all. It was not staged by the rebels who were surrounded, who don't have stocks of chemicals. It was not carried out, and this has been one of the most preposterous theories, by the White Helmet Rescue Organization, the Civil Defense Organization. And it was not carried out, as Russia claimed at one point, by agents of UK intelligence. So, hmm. yeah, Assad regime carried it out, and so, that is... Right. So, aside from the visual images that we have of people apparently suffering the symptoms of a, a chemical weapons attack, one of the... The, the bases on which we would place our belief that this thing really happened is the fact that a whole variety of actors simultaneously on the ground reported what one would expect to be all the stages of an unfolding chemical weapons attack in a way that there would have to be an inordinate and implausible amount of prior coordination to fake uh, if, 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 it were, uh, if it were not to be true. So one of the questions that has been raised uh, by the skeptics, many of whom, as we have already put on the table, have a vested interest in in skepticism for their refusal to believe that the Assad regime did this, is that there is no rationale for them to do it, that they know they're going to get themselves at the center of a big storm of international criticism for using chemical weapons, uh, and therefore it would be foolish for them to do it without a compelling military reason. And they have no compelling military reason because they're, at the moment, the runaway winners of this civil war, and therefore there's no, there's no need. Now, Uma, I know that you have some thoughts about that argument. Yeah, so when this question comes that what could be the logical reason for the regime to carry out an attack at that specific time, we should see the ground, uh, the ground reality at that time. So Duma has been surrounded by the regime, and for days, even weeks, there was some sort of negotiations going on, brokered by the Russians. And uh, the major dominant force in Duma, which controls uh, the rebel enclave, Jesh al-Islam, it was more it was more bent towards becoming a localized police force sort of thing and enter a sort of a soft reconciliation broken by the Russians. The thing which is crucial here is Jesh al-Islam is a very local group. Its all roots are very much within Duma and its surrounding villages or farmlands or the countryside. It has no ideological partners outside of Duma in northern Syria in any other enclave. So, And it also has been in fervent clashes with the formerly Al-Qaeda-aligned group uh, HDS. So it completely knew that if it has to go somewhere in northern Syria, it won't have any support base. And all the other rebel groups which will be there will be quite uh, openly hostile towards it. So, right. so, this, it, so this group is deeply entrenched in this particular place, and therefore it's going to be unusually hard for the regime to get them to agree voluntarily to, to quit and surrender control. That's definitely the thing, that if it have ended in an all-out fight, then the fighting would have taken block by block, and the regime would have lost... Uh, a large number of uh, troops or soldiers within this whole thing. Uh, because as we are talking, the I think the total amount of uh, their fighters which left the enclave after the agreement, it's about around eight to 9,000. So if we are talking about eight to 9,000 fighters, roughly half a division and their armaments and everything, they would have put up a sizable fight. And it would have further taken maybe weeks uh, for the regime to break through into the town. So what happened is that with this chemical weapon attack, 
Of course, the people who were affected were common civilians, but they were also families of uh, fighters. They were also relatives of uh, this group, because as I said, it is a highly localized group. So every person who is affected some way is connected with the with this rebel uh, establishment. So this increased, and uh, the Yesh al-Islam spokesperson, they also admitted that uh, the attack increased uh, pressure on them to agree, because at that moment it wasn't, it was already, the negotiation was uh, whether to leave, how to leave, or whether to stay, and in what conditions we should stay. So this came as the final push, which basically mm-hmm. <clears throat> made them agree the points which the regime wanted, so maybe Russia at that time was more amenable towards a, a localized truce where Yash al-Islam controls the area with Russian guarantees and uh, the regime allows aid and everything else uh, to enter it and gradually uh, it can integrate into the larger apparatus of the regime. But with this attack, Yash al-Islam agreed on all the conditions which the regime had put forward that you basically leave right. for the north. So... The Syrian regime was already in a somewhat advantageous position vis-à-vis this, the, the military campaign in this area, but what they have accomplished, which they otherwise might not have accomplished at all, and if they had accomplished it, would have come at very great cost, is gaining total control of this piece of territory near to the, near to the capital and moving on from it the fighters who, who would otherwise have dug in very deep and put up an extremely costly fight. So it, it would seem then that the regime has obtained a pretty substantial tactical gain as a consequence of the use of these chemical weapons. That's obviously pretty worrying to some people because the message it would seem to send is if you want to make tactical gains of this sort, maybe chemical weapons are an effective means of doing it, which is where the United States response comes in. So, Scott, let's go back to our narrative. This attack happens. It's reported widely in the media. There's a bunch of back and forth about whether it really happened or not, but the United States pretty much from moment one, takes it at, at face value and declares that the regime has carried out this attack. What, what happens then? Remember, it's not just the U.S. So it's the U.S., Britain, and France. And I emphasize that because the French will play an important role in the narrative at several levels. I think at one level, you've just identified the important thing that intelligence agencies who would have information that's even beyond what we've discussed that would have pointed to a Saudi regime responsibility, they're thinking, well, we tried in April 2017 when they carried out their last sarin attack in northwest Syria to warn them not to do it again because the U.S. poured in 59 missiles onto an air base, mm-hmm. and they've defied us. Now, if we don't do anything here, the Assad regime will feel that it has almost carte blanche to go to the next area of Syria, which is probably going to be in the south along the Jordanian border, and use it then. And then the big battle, which is up in the northwest, Idlib province, uh, that they can use those weapons there. Secondly, because, of course, the Assad regime is using something which looks to be stronger than chlorine and organophosphate, it once again exposes that they are in violation of the pledge that they had made in 2013 after their big attacks in this same area near Damascus that killed 1,400 people, at least 1,400 people, that they were going to give up all their chemical weapon stocks. Quite clearly, if there has been another attack with something strong, they haven't done that. And then the third... Or, or they have given them up and, re, and re, reconstituted them, them uh, yeah. because it's not... I mean, it, it, you couldn't do it in your kitchen, but it's not super difficult to make this stuff. Correct. It, and, it, and then the third thing is that both the U.S. and the French, the U.S. through... Uh, the Defense Secretary, James Mattis, the French through, uh, indeed, through Emmanuel Macron, the president, had warned the Assad regime openly. Almost, okay, chlorine's one thing because it's not banned under the Chemical Weapons Convention. So almost, we know you've carried out scores of attacks, so be it. But if you use something stronger than this, we'll have to respond. Indeed, Mattis had said that on more than one occasion back in February and March, and now you have this act of what appears to be defiance. So I will just go on to this this thing that uh, what's the significance of this rebel enclave around Damascus? Because if any uh, rebel force or if any 
military possibility of a of a takeover of Damascus was there this would these rebels would have been the the linchpin the most crucial aspect of that so with these this rebel enclave now gone the regime in Damascus is uh, secure more than ever and i i i will see this as uh, like a big strategic victory for the regime because this was a highly localized resistance group the town of duma it has all always been a center of salafi learning so it had all the fundamentals to go against uh, the regime it was not like just people came in a moment of time they just rose up and then after some time they thought like no maybe we can go back to our lives so it had the fundamentals to go against the regime and it is it's also interesting that uh, when we talk about the the need to attack or the need to flush them out from this region we also should remember that in regime discourse uh, or in rebel discourse there was this term which was used meat grinder so this this term basically can sum up how tough the resistance was or how tough this these fronts had been for the regime and how much ha- have been how heavy have been regime losses uh, here so it definitely makes sense uh, to do whatever they can and also i, I would say that uh, the us attacks uh, uh, one thing which can be linked up that which also came up came from the russians that uh, the these this chemical weapon attack was staged so then the us can intervene uh, the russians said that they already knew of a rebel planned offensive which will coordinate with the uh, with the US planned air strikes uh, so this whole thing was staged just to just to produce uh, uh, a resonator for the US to intervene hmm. which actually never happened the US just uh, did a symbolic or token air strike against uh, some some buildings or some establishments which were uh, involved in producing chemical weapons or something related to it but there was no rebel offensive uh, the agreement in duma it went on the rebels left it uh, ultimately nothing changed on ground so if it was a pretext then the thing that it was supposedly a pretext for doesn't seem to have happened which makes it kind of weird that it should have been done uh, some some master plan i mean let let's uh, let's take a step back then and think people talk a lot about the united states being involved in syria or getting involved in syria or bombing syria it probably worth uh separating out a variety of different things some of them already happening some of them that hypothetically might happen that that could potentially mean the united states has been involved in syria for sure uh in one way for some time which is to say that isis the terrorist group that mounts attacks in the middle east and worldwide uh, that the united states considers to be one of its primary enemies in the war on terror has a base of operations in syria as it did in iraq and the united states has been involved in military operations against them in syria so that is in a sense the united states being involved in syria for, for a while now they are an opponent of the government of syria they're they're one of the many shards of 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 the multiply fractured um anti-assad uh actor set that that we have a second thing that the united states could in principle be doing in syria is trying to overthrow the government of bashar al-assad he is uh roundly condemned by the united states and much of the international community as a war criminal for the the kind of actions that he's engaged in during the course of his fight to hold power um and when people say they want the united states to get involved part of what they sometimes mean is they want to see them more proactively attempting to obtain the outcome they say they want which is that bashar al-assad who has committed crimes that can never be forgiven should be forced to stand down from power in syria a third thing that people might mean is that 
the United States should intervene on humanitarian grounds to alleviate the suffering that's taking place in Syria. We've already said nearly half a million people dead, millions of people being displaced. This is a huge destabilizing catastrophe for the region and an enormous source of suffering for the individuals involved. So the United States should insert military force for the purpose of protecting the many people on the ground who are currently on the sharp end of or, or, or brutal treatment. Whether or not that elevates to the level of toppling the government, you should, you should put yourself in there to do something. And then, fourthly, there is this idea that, okay, an enormous amount of humanitarian suffering is ongoing, but the United States, sad as it is to see that, is not going to do anything about that. But if the particular source of that suffering is the use of chemical weapons, well, that that is some kind of um, extra thing that that needs to be prevented above and beyond one's normal concern for uh, for violence against civilians. So you can kill a hundred thousand civilians with artillery and barrel bombs and whatnot. And that's bad and it will be condemned, but ultimately the United States isn't going to do anything. But if you kill 50 civilians using chemical weapons, that crosses a taboo about the kind of weaponry that is permissible in wartime. And the United States needs to do something not to topple Bashar al-Assad, not necessarily to try and uh, minimize deaths more broadly in the war, but to send a message that if you're going to kill people, you can't kill people this particular way. Now, it seems that what the United States has done in this in this instance is intervention type four, <laughs> as it were. Like it's well, maybe one plus four. It's yeah. continuing to fight ISIS. It's trying to send a military message that you can't use chemical weapons, and it's. Uh, uh, <laughs> It's no closer, it would seem to me, to either of the other two kinds, which is either doing something meaningful to try and topple Assad, which they say they want to achieve, or doing something meaningful to try to contain the humanitarian situation, at least through military means, more seriously than they've done before. Is that a, is that a, is that a correct read on this situation? Yeah. Let me crystallize this by saying something that will sound provocative, and that is the U.S. has not been involved in Syria on a national scale since about early 2016. Now, that might sound strange, given everything that we think we supposedly know about the U.S. being always involved in conflicts and supposedly wanting to get rid of Assad. But in fact, consider this, that the United States stopped supporting the Syrian opposition and Syrian rebels in autumn 2015. They stopped really any meaningful arms supply to the rebels. They really stopped giving political backing to the opposition. Instead, they switched their backing to a Kurdish-led force, initially to fight against the Islamic State up in the north and east of the country. Secondly, the political process since 2016 has pretty much been one in which the U Russia has the lead with Iran and now Turkey, and the, US, and the U.S. is off to the side. I mean, they're not really involved in what's called the Astana process, which is the one that the Russians are leading. They weren't involved in the Sochi talks earlier this year. So what does that mean that the U.S. is looking for? There's probably three things here, and none of them are getting rid of Assad. Even if they say they don't want Assad in power in the long run, that's just rhetoric. One, they want to contain chemical weapons. And indeed, former Obama officials have said that that was the overriding goal going back to 2012. Mm -hmm. Whatever else they were saying about the Assad regime, it was chemical weapons that concerned them. Secondly, the U.S. wants to see, ensure that not only the Assad regime forces, but more importantly, Iranian forces and Hezbollah are not close to the Israeli border, or in this case, the Israeli-occupied Golan Heights. And they have an agreement with Russia to supposedly do that. Thirdly, and most importantly, arguably, U.S. military involvement is alongside the Kurdish forces in the north and the east, both to make sure that ISIS does not revive, but also because it puts up a buffer zone against the Iranians, because it's right near the Iraq border, and the idea is, is that you block the Iranians having a land route which goes all the way from Tehran to Damascus. So, in other words, the Americans have certain specific goals, but they're not on a national scale. So the idea that the U.S. is there with a coherent strategy to get rid of Assad, that's uh, long gone. Yeah, because the – I mean, from my perspective, the key reason why – uh, well, people are dissatisfied with the United States engagement, like many people 
Americans and otherwise kind of look at it and go, like, this is ineffectual, this is uh, inadequate. Like, the United, there's all this warfare and suffering and carnage taking place, and the United States, which is the most powerful military actor in the world, isn't doing anything. Why are they not doing something? And I think the big... Well, the, the, the reason why they seem to be accomplishing so much less than relatively less powerful military actors like Russia or Iran seems to me to be uh, kind of two closely related things. One, it's way, way, way less clear what they want to accomplish. Like Russia and Iran have like a really clear goal here. Bashar al-Assad, who is the internationally recognized president of the sovereign state of Syria is in power, and they wish to keep him there. So all they have to do is uh, do a cost-benefit about what price they're prepared to pay to keep him there, and then keep paying that price until such time as they achieve victory. The United States, they kind of want him not there, but they're extremely unclear who they would want in his place. They're very hazy about the process by which one would go about uh, resolving that, etc., etc. And the second related thing that, that... makes the difference is that they just are less invested in this situation. So the Iranians and the Russians have a really strong interest in keeping Assad in place. He gives Russia uh, access to the Mediterranean in a way that otherwise they would be wholly deprived of. He gives the Iranians access to their allies um, in uh, in Lebanon and to the north of Israel that otherwise they would be deprived of. They have no ready substitute for that. The United States like has a whole grab bag of things they kind of care about. Like they, they, they don't particularly like Ba'athist dictators. They don't particularly like humanitarian outrages. They don't particularly like the use of chemical weapons. But they, like their dislike of all those things is much less than the investment of the Russians and the Iranians in the concrete goals that they, that they, that they, are, that they are aiming at here. So if this becomes a contest about who cares more and is prepared to therefore take the, the greater risks, it seems like outbidding Iran and outbidding Russia is something that, that the United States simply, um, even if it did have a clear objective, which it doesn't, is unlikely to be able to, 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 to accomplish. You agree with that, Uma? Yeah, I think uh, this is this is a very good point that uh, all the regime backers they are very clear in whatever they want to achieve. While on the other hand, as you just suggested, uh, that U.S. Uh, strategy is very disoriented, uh, and it will be kind of uh, funny to suggest that if there would have been no ISIS, maybe we would have seen even less connection or engagement of U.S. within Syria. Mm-hmm. So you can directly link it with uh, this thing to President Trump's point that uh, we are, we are, we have to quit Syria. So you, when do you quit? What's the condition? That ISIS has been defeated. There is, uh, we are gradually uprooting them. So then, uh, of course, we don't have anything else to do there. So this gives uh, the set of mind or uh, point of view which has been prevalent during Obama administration in the White House that what should be the priority. Mm-hmm. Uh, what they, And the thing is, they even didn't get that right as well. So they constructed a largely Kurdish uh, uh, rebel force, uh, which had a limited number of Arab uh, groups into it to fight ISIS, and essentially in areas which were predominantly Arab. So basically when ISIS was expelled, uh, the areas were again under a loose sort of uh, arrangement where the Kurdish forces hold the actual power and the residents, they they just feel that they are not, uh, they have not been liberated uh, in its entirety. So you just uh, change uh, your, uh, basically you just change the occupiers. So mm-hmm. first, this was these uh, fundamentalist folks which were there and now some folks coming from some other area, they are there. Mm. So this this shows what is the major flaw even within this uh, singular particular focus of the U.S. here. And also, I guess, um, uh, as a Russian journalist suggests to me, which actually is quite interesting, that 
uh, since the since the Russian intervention, the playing field in Syria is like one team sitting completely on bench and the other team just scoring goals and goals and goals. And uh, as we remember that Turkey initially downed a Russian jet. So he used that example as suddenly one player coming in and trying to block uh, the other team and then he being kicked out and then afterwards told like, no, you don't need to do this. You can just sit in our camp and just watch the whole game. So mm -hmm. this is this is uh, fundamentally a restructuring of uh, U.S. relationship with its allies as well. Mm -hmm. And this was why all the allies, they were very reluctant to pull in with this recent uh, airstrike thing that mm -hmm. will it be a more strategic, a grand, uh, uh, <clears throat> uh, will it bring some grand change on the ground or it, will it be just as uh, it later turned out to be a one-time Yeah, well, I mean, the, I mean, the, present, the, the person of President Trump, you know, who is often a kind of a bringer of chaos to, to, to issues, um, but he really embodies the incoherence of American thinking about, the, about this topic um, in that he campaigned for office and won office as a vocal critic of American intervention in the Middle East, claimed uh, that he was strongly against the Iraq war when it happened, tweeted frequently at President Obama that he should under no circumstances be getting involved in, in intervention in Syria. Uh, he also has this like weird bromance thing going with Vladimir Putin and with the, with, with the Russians uh, who are supporters of the Syrian government. So uh, you know, that would give him a potential route to saying, okay, uh, the United States absolutely shouldn't be intervening to try and topple Assad, and maybe they should even be giving Assad carte blanche to join us in hammering ISIS, which he also said he wanted to more uh, effectually do, uh, in order to uh, remove the one reason the United States needs to care about this region at all, and then we can just put the whole the whole situation to bed. Now, having come into office, like first of all, he's been kind of dragged by his generals into an open ended inchoate commitment to do who knows what in Syria on a kind of rolling basis sort of to do with fighting ISIS but with a whole bunch of add-ons that we're not too clear on and then secondly completely out of left field uh, when this chemical weapons attack happened last year uh, apparently his daughter shows him some photographs of some, uh, some, some uh, uh, dead children and the previously untapped uh, bleeding heart of Donald Trump is opened up to decide that suddenly nothing could be more important than deploying the force of the U.S. military to prove that America will not tolerate this kind of thing. Now, obviously, you know, the United States is tolerating huge humanitarian costs all of the time. It's ridiculous that this one incident should provoke a total change of course. But, uh, but nevertheless, it, it, it shows how vulnerable even... Even someone who would seem to have all the reason in the world to see through a well-established commitment to not having the United States involved in this situation uh, has been to ad hoc intervention-like things with confused rationales. Uh, I think there's an important caveat, though, to what you and Umar are building up, which is the United States is being incoherent with an incoherent leader across all of Syria. And I think the caveat is this. I mean, Trump just speaks in thought bubbles. So when he says the U.S. will withdraw, and when he asks the Saudi king for $4 billion to cover the U.S. withdrawal, it's not going to happen, okay? But if you look at it from the standpoint of the adults in the playground, which is the Pentagon, there is actually a coherence in terms of what they want, but not on a national scale. And that is the reason why they are entrenched now with the Kurdish-led Syrian Democratic Forces, even in Arab areas, is they see it as necessary leverage or indeed a zone in what is effectively a partitioned Syria to counter the Iranians. As long as the Iranians are entrenched alongside Assad, the U.S. is not going to leave that part of Syria. That's sort of the balancer that takes place. Now that raises bigger questions, which is about Assad versus the Kurds and where that goes. You know, can Assad actually tolerate an autonomous Kurdish region? But let me just give you one instant to illustrate where coherence comes into sharp focus. In February, the Russians tested the Americans. 
or at least their mercenaries tested the Americans, called the Wagner Group. And they attacked this Kurdish-led force, uh, which is near some oil and gas fields. And it's like, okay, do you defend? Uh, the Americans brought in the bombers, and they killed about, we believe, 200 Russians within hours. And the Russian paramilitaries, mercenaries, whatever you want to call them, have not tested the Americans since then. So the flashpoint, ironically, wasn't going to come over the chemical weapons attack. It wasn't going to come over the U.S. bombing some Assad regime facilities and withdrawing. The flashpoint is actually up in the northeast of the country. And then let me just use that to lever into something additional to bring in another player, although Umer responded to them. The other flashpoint or line is up in the northwest. Because what is interesting is you do have a protected zone in the northwest, an opposition zone, but it's protected not by the Americans but by the Turks. Because since the Turks went in in the summer of 2016 alongside the rebels, they've established really a zone which is theirs alongside the rebels, including defeating Kurdish groups in that area. And that's the one that the Russians have to take a hard look at. Because if the Assad regime says, we want all of Syria back, will you help us by bombing this area? Then Russia, which has sort of accepted this Turkish position for the past 18 months, is going to have to make some hard decisions then. Hmm. Umer, this is, this uh, th- this brings me back to you because one of the ungodly complicating features that I've referred to uh, in in my introduction here is just how many different players have become entangled in this situation. It's um, it's almost in double figures. Maybe it is in double figures. Like the the, the list of countries that have some direct uh, financial or strategic uh, commitment to to this rolling conflict. Um, Clearly, the United States escalating its military involvement in Syria would be of major consequence to all of the different players. So what has the reaction broadly been amongst amongst the various people nervously watching uh, around the region in light of these recent events? So you can you can actually divide the reactions into different countries with different sort of orientation. So the traditional American allies, which very much uh, stand with it in almost all things, like the Saudis, the Emiratis, the Qataris, they all supported uh, the airstrikes, the whole thing, quite wholeheartedly. Uh, and the rhetoric was much more close to the American rhetoric as it itself. The other major player in uh, Syria, which is Turkey, uh, since the... Um, the chemical weapon attack, their rhetoric was sort of confusing, sort of uh, not giving up really what they, they want to do. It was interesting uh, that uh, the Turkish authorities, they used the word, we are trying to mediate and uh, diffuse the crisis between the Russians and the Americans. What I, and uh, I immediately saw through, the Turks are really, they're not very happy if the U.S. is coming in and doing this strike. So there are possibly two reasons uh, what would have affected Turkish motivations. One thing, Turks know that the U.S. is not coming with a strategy, so it will just be a token strike, and then there will be no follow-up. So why would you place your bets on an actor which is not serious at all in in any way, and which is also backing uh, your... uh, uh, sort of uh, antithesis or opponents in northern Syria, the Kurdish groups. And another thing which probably weighed on the Turkish um, Turkish government and uh, its uh, influentials was uh, if the U.S., let's see, if the U.S. comes with a strategy and it goes hard against Assad, maybe we would be the next persons to be disciplined that, okay, just uh, drop out your whole bad blood with the Kurds. We are not going to tolerate it anymore. And uh, just, just, just discipline yourselves. Just fall in our line, which basically sort of uh, uh, compromises the the Turkish interests within North Syria, which are which they can more coordinate uh, with the Russians till now. But if the Americans come really hard and push, uh, put their weight completely with the, mm. with the Syrian defense forces, which is Kurdish-led group, then the, Kurds, then the Turks will be in a difficult position. But eventually, as we know what happened, 
the American air strike was just a token strike which didn't change the overall scenario. Mm. Yeah, because that's, I mean, the, the thing that would be the big game changer here, it seems to me, would be if the United States made a decision that Bashar al-Assad needed to be removed from power or, at the very least, the military balance on the ground needed to be changed such that Bashar al-Assad was forced to negotiate, even when one of the things on the table in that negotiation was his departure from power. And it was worth deploying American military force in order to accomplish that objective. And it's the fact that the United States has not been thinking that way up to now, indeed has been running away from the possibility of doing that, that has, you know, kept the conflict rolling along its current path for some for some time and uh, but the, the risk i guess at the moment is that without achieving clarity in its own mind that that's what it wants to do and therefore without signaling clarity to all the other players that that is now the way the United States is going to deploy its force, so make your moves accordingly. The United States kind of half inserts itself militarily into this situation in a way that begins to, uh, in a way that creates the possibility of a direct clash with Russian Russian forces that could spiral without without uh, without everyone being able to contain it. Now. You've highlighted, Scott, that one of the things that's happened recently is that a bunch of Russians on the ground have been killed in fighting with American proxies. That's kind of uh, containable in the sense that it's not literally American force. It's kind of like American-supported forces. Also, the fact that the Russians are not willing to avow the fact that those actors are really theirs. Indeed, I believe the the journalist who revealed their presence in Syria, uh, uh, presumably overcome by sadness at his discovery, uh, fell off a balcony uh, in Moscow uh, uh, a week ago, which illustrates pretty pretty well, I think, that the Russian government is not thrilled to have... uh, all of its activities in in this conflict exposed. But the, the the serious risk here has to be that in a situation where we're not talking about proxies and we're not talking about like deniable fringe hired mercenaries, we're talking about actual uniformed personnel of the United States and of Russia, uh, something happens that leads to loss of life through direct interaction between those two things, and suddenly we're in we're in. Uh, uh, we're in a ratcheting escalation scenario between the two most heavily armed countries in the world, and we don't know what happens next. I, you and I had that discussion a few years ago, which is quite interesting, about do you draw a line with the Russians and declare protected zones, no-fly zones? And it's interesting we're back there again. I actually don't think it would be a huge step to expand to this. Now, I don't think the U.S. will take it, but let me explain why. There's already a de facto protected zone in the northwest of the country, which is Idlib, part of Idlib province and northern Aleppo province. It's just the Turks who cut the deal with the Russians for it. All you have to do is expand that zone to cover a bit of the adjacent provinces, Homs and Hama provinces, and you could freeze the situation up there. Uh, the Turks aren't going to push it. They're happy with what they've got right now. But if the U.S. came in and said, fine, you've already got a de facto protected zone in the northeast where the Kurds are covered, the remaining zone where I think the Assad regime is going to attack next is actually on the south along the Jordanian border, which, which is Dara province, where the uprising started. Now, if you came in right now and said, look, no, we're freezing here. We're freezing this. We're going to protect this zone. And you tell the Russians you're doing it. I think there's a way forward. But whether you and I agree that that's a, an advisable step because it raises the possibility of confrontation, mm-hmm. I don't think the Americans are going to do it. I think, yeah. in other words... The way this is going to game out is is that the Assad regime is going to be allowed to take the rest of the south of the country, except, and this is the key thing, or sorry, with the proviso, and this is the key thing, you do not allow Iran or Hezbollah into the southwest. Because then, here's the other twist in it, that's the Israeli red line. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to bring the Israelis into the conflict beyond well, th- where they are already. Well, I think there's two distinct possibilities here. I mean, and both of them are concerning, but in different ways. Yeah. One is that the United States makes a calculated decision that it wants to increase its commitment to achieving something in this conflict and using force to do it. Um, maybe 
let's say it doesn't go as far as saying it wants to topple Assad, but it says we want to, to use your example, create some protected spaces into which people can go, within which they will be protected from attack by either the Syrian government's forces or their uh, or, the, or their allies' forces. In doing that, the United States is basically taking a gamble that by declaring that it will use force to prevent attacks in that region, others will be deterred from uh, others will be deterred from deploying their force there. And if it comes to it, if they have to use some force to prove the point that they really mean it, that because they were open and upfront about the fact that this was their this was their position uh, they will be tested but once it's found that they're committed everybody will take it seriously and 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 it will not escalate to a to a bigger conflict so you're kind of you're taking a calculated gamble that other people will adjust themselves to accept yeah. the new lines the United States has drawn the second possibility is that the United States does not make a calculated and clear new designation of what it is committed to defending, it just reacts to some event that happens, generates a, a, a kind of atmosphere of crisis and urgency, and it does it in a way that isn't defending some previously clear-cut and declared line, it's just doing something in the heat of the moment that then... Uh, because of who it kills, because of what it destroys, is taken to be a, a, an escalation meriting severe response from Russia or, or, uh, or Iran or some other uh, important regional actor. So that's much less calculated, I guess, would be my point. And the risk is that the United States doesn't deliberately test other actors by setting a new line. It just does something that provokes an, un, an, an uh, unreflectively provokes an escalation of an already potentially dangerous situation. I think we're going to come to agreement, but let me preface this by saying this is exactly what the Russians have exploited since 2013, initially from a position of weakness. Time and time again, they've said... Look, if you declare a protected zone, if you do this and so on, there could be a confrontation. Let's talk about deconfliction here. And they've used that, even declaring de-escalation zones and then breaking them, just to set it up so the Assad regime and its allies could go into area after area and even use chemical weapons. So realize that the Russians have exploited that. Mm-hmm. I think one of two things has to happen in game out. And either, either the United States, and not just the United States, it has to be an international effort comes in and says, look, we're going to have humanitarian zones, protected zones. We're going to do this. We're going to negotiate our way to it. Because unless you do that, you're not going to get political leverage against the Russians. Because the Assad regime is never going to come to the table unless you have protected zones declared. So let's realize yeah. that. And if you're not going to do that, this is where you and I agree. If, you and I, if you're not going to do it, I can see why you say you don't do it. The U.S. actually should say, we're not doing this. They should say, in other words, we're in the northeast of the country. That's where we are. We're not going to do anything about the south of the country, which effectively greenlights the Assad regime to go in with the Russians, because then at least you give the chance for the rebels to surrender in the south. But if you do this position, which is in between, which says, well, we don't really like it, we don't like what you do, then you will get thousands more people killed and you're going to get well, tens like, well, of thousands more displaced. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess I can, I, can, I can imagine if your primary concern is the well-being of the, of, of the Syrians on the ground, yeah. I can imagine that there is some marginal value to be had from American ambiguity. Because the impression might be that if you, like, if, if that although the Assad regime and its allies have more or less a free hand in these areas, it is theoretically possible that if they do too much too uh, uh, spectacularly, no. then there's going to come a point where some kind of response is forthcoming. They, they go too far. They provoke a reaction. And if you give them an explicit statement that you can do basically anything you like because the United States is totally uh, uh, out of this game, then maybe that opens the door to something even beyond what we've seen. So you could say that ambiguity is achieving a purpose. But... Ambiguity is achieving that potential, hypothetical, speculative, marginal benefit at the cost of much greater risk to the wider strategic situation because um, 
Although clarity that the United States is definitely going to do nothing would free the hands of everybody else to, to, to act as they see fit, it would radically reduce the possibility that someone is going to accidentally trip over some invisible red line that the United States has in its own mind and provoke a response that they're, that they're not expecting. Look, there's no ambiguity here. Everyone knows. Everyone knows. Let me get Umer to back me up. Everyone knows that the Americans aren't going to do a damn thing about bombing as long as it's not with nerve mm-hmm. agent. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that the Americans will accept incendiary bombing. They'll accept cluster bombing. They will accept sieges. Everyone knows that. So there's no ambiguity. That's why I'm saying to you, if everyone knows it, I'd be much happier if this administration just came flat out and said, But then why does it, if everyone knows it, why does it matter if they say it? You seem to be arguing because that it was still, important they articulated because then this, that would change behavior. There's still this hope amongst people, and I'll get it. So let me ask you, Mayor, if this is right. There's still that hope in Dara down in the south, because remember, this is where it all started, and where you've got locally-based rebel groups. They're still clinging to this hope that somehow they can avoid being overrun by the Assad forces because someone will give them support. They're still holding on to that. And as long as the the Americans still, I think it made clear they aren't going to do it, but there's still that vestige, isn't it, that someone could come in and back up that area where they're safe from the Assad regime. Yeah. I think the other other interesting point is that uh, just leave Assad and uh, whatever his regime is doing for one moment. Uh, the American whole policy in Syria, as you suggested, is also to contain Iran. Yeah. <clears throat> and southern Syria is the most important theater for <clears throat> the Iranians right now. So uh, I don't think so that other than Assad himself or his regime... Russians uh, or even the Iranians, they are much interested in the Northwest. I mean, it's of course, it's hotbed of rebel activity, but it's not strategically important. The southern zone is strategically very important for Iranians because once the zone is cleared, Iranians and Hezbollah, they can pull their forces in. So Israel is cornered from basically two sides now, from Lebanon, from Syrian border and, of course, from uh, south and uh, from Gaza Strip through Hamas, which will be a strategically very wonderful happening for Iranians. And I, I will say, like, uh, ambiguity is, is, is a very good strategy, at least, uh, and that's how the Turks basically are dealing with Russians. Mm-hmm. Nobody actually knows what the Turks want, but still they somehow here and there, there and there, manage to go whatever they want to do. I think instead of, uh, like, uh, I mean, doing anything else, the Americans can just set up a base, just like in northern, northeastern Syria. Put up some troops, put up a base, and uh, then the Russians will be in the same uh, uh, Wagner sort of dilemma. Set up a base where? Well, they've got the base at Tanf. In in. Just like that in in Dara or in the south. So you're, you're saying they should set up a base not only in the in the east where they have one. You're saying they should set up south. a base in the south. In the south. Okay. Because that you don't have to give any signal. That will be a signal in itself. That okay, you must stop now. Because the thing is, um, okay, let's say let's put up like a, put ourselves in a scenario that the US don't do anything of course the regime will regime Russians and Iranians they will go for the southern zone mm-hmm. but what is the guarantee that uh, the Russians will listen to Israel that we will not allow Iranians or Hezbollah to be there or the Iranians uh, or Hezbollah will not be coming there why are they going for this zone their whole interest in this zone is just to just to militarily harass the Israelis and to have a strategic foothold there. Uh, And I think uh, the U.S. uh, just, as I said earlier, leave Assad aside. If the U.S. uh, strategy to contain Iran within Syria or within the broader Middle East has to succeed, this, this zone is very crucial. And one thing interesting, I was reading an article yesterday that people within this zone they have their narrative and discourse towards Israel has changed radically. So now they are in much, like from the other Arab audiences, they see Israel as a much favorable player uh, because they say like this is the only actor which Mm -hmm. sort of attacks uh, through airstrikes their Syrian regime. They have been giving humanitarian aid. People have been treated in Israeli hospitals. So Israel is very much 
an actor in the South. And I'm not sure if the Israelis will manage to convince the Americans mm. that yeah. it it's not only American interest, it's their interest also very much vested within that southern zone. Yeah. I, I was going to ask either, do you think either of you, do either of you really think though that the Americans have any type of political will to put up a base in the South? Well, I th- no. I mean, I think the, the, the problem that this uh, that this last exchange illustrates is the gulf that there is between the the reasons why, on hard nosed, serious consideration, the United States might, at a governmental level, make a decision to commit the resources and take the risks required to hold a big stake in the civil war in Syria. And where the conversation is politically in the United States about what the United States' relationship to this conflict is. Because if you started a conversation, I suspect, even with the average U.S. senator, let alone member of the general public, about like what Syria is about and why the United States might care... Um, I, I, I will imagine you would get through a whole bunch of different reasons, like the threat of ISIS and terrorism, uh, the humanitarian uh, abuses civilians by Bashar al-Assad, uh, the use of chemical weapons and the illegitimacy of that, before you got to, and maybe you would never at any point get to, the idea that uh, you know, containing Iran through prevention of a strategic corridor and assisting Israeli interests in the process came up and that you know that's a specific instance of like a broader problem in american politics i think which is that articulating clearly national interest oriented um strategic rationales for the use of military force abroad seems to be something that happens exclusively at like think tank breakfasts and inside the situation room of the white house and happens functionally never uh, in conversations involving either the general public or the legislature in getting the political support for what you want to do so you end up like stumbling bass-ackwards into conflicts that if you have any reason to be involved in them at all, they are like basically hard-nosed and strategic via a messy intercutting set of talking points about humanitarianism uh, and uh, uh, drawing principles about international law, etc., etc. And that seems to be at play in part in, in, in the, the debates that took place over this recent military strike like the new york times reported that the secretary of defense james mattis like mm. had like two major plays during the course of the run up to this first of all uh, was to tell the president that he wasn't confident he had the legal authority to actually carry out these attacks because there's no declaration of war against Syria. Existing legislation that gives the president the right to strike against terrorists and associated groups clearly does not cover a military strike against the government of Syria. So, you know, in the Secretary of Defense's view, maybe you need to go ask Congress if it's legal for you to do this. And the president kind of waved it aside and asserted very broad president can do anything he wants, Article 2, Commander-in-Chief powers. And then and secondly, the goal of the, the Secretary of Defense seems to have been to keep this strike as limited as it could possibly be, um, partly because there's no strategic rationale that would underpin a broader strike, partly because of those fears about triggering an escalation with the Russians that we were talking about before. And the president's uh, pushback against that, as far as the reporting has it, seems to stem from the fact that, well, I've said on Twitter that we're going to do something really big uh, and militarily impressive in response to recent events, and I can't look silly by not doing something big now. So, like, <laughs> essentially what seems to have happened is so long, the, sec- the Secretary of Defense uh, uh, convinced the president that if they made a big enough song and dance and show out of these very limited strikes, that everybody would take their a word for it that this lived up to his billing as a big military military gesture, and that was good enough for him in in this instance. But like, what none of that qualifies as is a serious discussion within the American body politic at large about what the United States' interests in Syria are, what the commitments it should be prepared to make as a result are, and the time frame over which it should be prepared to make those commitments to achieve it. Which means that I just don't think that. Uh, even the executive branch, let alone 
the legislature, let alone the general public, uh, is uh, anywhere like where it would need to be to sustain a serious American military commitment to this situation because they're not even having the right conversation, let alone arriving at the right conclusions. If you had a joined-up administration and joined-up international community, though, I think you could do it. <laughs> well, you know, well, there, no, yeah, there, no, there, yeah. there, there, as a man from Alabama, there are a variety of if-then uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. Yeah, uh, colloquialisms I could throw you away. If a frog had wings, he wouldn't bump his ass when he jumped. Yeah, but let me let me put it to you this way. It's not going to happen. So let's just say this, which raises the question of of this unstable area in the South, as Umer points up. You could actually make an argument which says, look, we need to really look at the South in terms of a stabilized zone or whatever you call it, in part because of there actually is an Islamic State group which is in the south of Syria. So you could actually invoke them. They're actually, nobody knows much about them that they're there. Secondly, you could do it by saying, look, we're really worried about instability between Israel and Syria. We need to basically make sure this doesn't happen, so we'll set it up there. And third, you could play the humanitarian card, which is, look, we just want to prevent further chemical attacks. We want to prefer that. You could construct it, do it. Do I think it'll happen? No. But then that'll take us on to our next discussion, which is, all right, how then do you contain the conflict? Because it will spill over yeah. into the South, right? Yeah, and That's there will be a, a lot of new refugees again. Yeah, exactly. The broader dis- debate, which we just had, that uh, what's going on within White House or uh, the Trump administration, things might change from this current regular pattern. So, of course, Trump is not the policymaker. He doesn't know about things. And, of course, we cannot expect uh, to bet on him. But That's what... a good election slogan for him. He doesn't know about things. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like that may be the 2020 campaign. <laughs> who, 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 who knows? Yeah, we, we've tried leaders who know about things. Yeah, now exactly. try something, try something different. Yeah. Just like you. I don't know anything. So... <laughs> But but the thing is, interesting thing is that uh, uh, we we saw uh, that for the first time there was uh, very open friction within uh, the administration between Secretary Mattis and uh, John Bolton. So the whole who is the national security uh, national security advisor and uh, so what if this confrontation this conflict uh, goes further? And eventually, it leads uh, to matters being removed. <laughs> if we are going towards this, then may, then you can because the whole thing is the policy making is done by the Pentagon. So, yeah. if there is a new policy maker within Pentagon, maybe we can expect things to change. Yeah, but do I want to put my faith in basically Bolton and Trump and a new Pentagon person coming coming up with the right answer? No, I mean that. <laughs> Although it will be interesting to see how their uh, uh, how their relationship plays out, in that the main thing that Donald Trump and John Bolton seem to have in common is that they really enjoy being rude to people, uh, and they both think they know everything about everything. So, like the phrase "I've thought about it," and uh, on reflection, "You're right," has never come out of either of their mouths, like in the in the whole history of their their lives. Uh, but they don't seem to have an awful lot of substantive overlap in that Donald Trump made his whole the foreign policy angle of his whole political career basically saying that the United States should bomb the hell out of ISIS and otherwise have as little to do with the Middle East as possible. John Bolton, on the other hand, has been in favor of like every war that everyone has ever suggested on every Reddit thread uh, for the last 20 years uh, in, in the Middle East. So, you know, at some point, presumably, there's going to come a moment around the table where John Bolton recommends some hugely consequential escalation in the Middle East that would likely lead to a major war and possibly a, like the requirement for, uh, you know, some uh, galactic scale commitment of American resources to its aftermath, and Donald Trump will have to decide if he's going to continue with his lifetime habit of listening to whatever the last person who spoke to him told him to do, or say, "Wait a minute, I think I remember like being firmly opposed to precisely this for almost my whole time in public life." No, John Bolton, I'm not going to do it because it's weird that he's like he's he's decided to appoint somebody. Um, to the most senior foreign policy job in the White House because he likes his belligerent affect, despite the fact that he seems to put that in service of causes that he disagrees with quite firmly. Because he's great on TV. 
You know, that's what this administration's behind. Look, neither the Trump or the Bolton course leads to an intervention to stabilize the situation, though. That's the point. It leads to an intervention that makes it more confrontational. Let me just ask you one question quickly to wrap up. If the U.S. doesn't move to stabilize the South, does anyone else? Gulf states, Turkey, Israelis? I think we we can bet on the Israelis. They will not they will not be deterred to do what is what they think is is right. And now you see messaging has started between the Russians and the Israelis. The Russians are giving the Syrian regime uh, the S three hundred anti aircraft and missile defense system, and it is direct uh, uh, direct signal to the Israelis, not the Americans. So I I think there will be confrontation within within the southern zone. Uh, because Israel will not let the Iranians establish their hand there. This is this is something very clear. As the former Israeli uh, national security advisor to uh, Netanyahu, General Amidror, he suggested that, uh, and he suggested in a manner which was more uh, more oriented towards Israeli audience that we are facing a national security threat. So, do the Russians choose the Israelis in what has been a tacit, basically? agreement not to escalate confrontation that they've had for a couple of years? Or do the Russians stay unconditionally behind the Assad regime and the Iranians if you have that flashpoint in the south? I think the Russians are increasingly getting on the other side with the Syrian regime. Well, that sounds good and ominous. Uh, I think we've set the world to rights. Thank you very much. You can follow the Political Worldview podcast on Twitter at Paul Worldview. Please do. You can also follow our show page on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Paul Worldview, uh, where you can see links to the show, related articles, etc. You can find us on SoundCloud or iTunes, where I beseech you, I beg you, it would be a personal favor to me and to all the rest of the team if you would uh, subscribe to us, perhaps also leave us a rating or a comment maybe share us on social media tell other people that we exist uh, uh, let them know that you listened that you liked us uh, and that you recommend they try it out too um, our participants today have been Scott Lucas where can people find you online if they're looking Scott well I am always at Political Worldview's partner site the news and analysis site EA Worldview eaworldview.com or always camped out on Twitter at Scott Lucas underscore EA Uma, do you have an online presence for those inclined to seek it out? Yeah, uh, people can always connect with me on Twitter. Uh, it's U M A R K A R I M eighty nine on Twitter. You search me, or you just search me by my name, and I am there. Gotcha. I'm Adam Quinn. Uh, I am on Facebook, standing next to Lyndon Johnson. That's the best place to find me, Adam Quinn 161. Uh, if you want to put a number on which of the Adam Quinns Facebook has to offer, I am. I'm also on Twitter, at Adam James Quinn, but uh, not a big fan of Twitter, uh, which I, I appreciate is unfashionable, especially in these, in these hashtag delete Facebook days when apparently everybody is moving from one platform to the other uh, in, in synchronized condemnation of Mark Zuckerberg's treatment of our privacy. But I'm still on the Facebook train and will continue to be so. Seek me out there if you could, if, if your tolerance for abuse of personal data is high enough. Our producer is Connor McKenna, uh, and you've been listening to us from the Political Science and National Studies Department at the University of Birmingham in England. We are funded and supported by the Pulse's Good Ideas Fund. Thank you very much to them. We will be back soon. It's been good to be back this time, and we uh, look forward to talking to you again before long. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.